Hello, my name is Anne-Marie Cannon, and I'm the host of Armchair Historians. What's your favorite history? Each episode begins with this one question. My guests come from all walks of life and are people who get really excited about a particular time, place, or person from our distant or not-so-distant past. The jumping-off point is where they become curious, then enter the rabbit hole into discovery, some through scholarly research, others through pop culture documentaries and other podcasts. We look at history through the filter of other people's eyes. Armchair Historians is a Belgian Rabbit production. Stay up to date with us through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Be sure to like and subscribe. It really does help to spread the word. Wherever you listen to your podcast, that is where you'll find us. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. You can also find us at armchairhistorians.com. Armchair Historians is an independent podcast. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron through Patreon or buy us a cup of coffee through Ko-fi. Links to both in the episode notes. Hello, fellow armchair historians, Anne-Marie here. Before we get into part two of my interview with Emily Strasser, I'd like to take a moment to thank all of our Kofi and Patreon supporters. I'm truly humbled by all of the people who think that what I'm doing is worthwhile enough to support the show. To find out more about how you can support the show, you can go to www.armchairhistorians.com or you can go to any of our episode pages from your podcast platform of choice. Also, don't forget there's other ways that you can support the show by following us on social media and joining the conversation or leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. In today's episode, we pick up where we left off last week with Emily Strasser, author of Half-Life of a Secret, Reckoning with a Hidden History. Emily's a writer based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She received her MFA in nonfiction from the University of Minnesota. Her work has appeared in multiple publications, including Catapult, Plowshares, The Bitter Southerner, The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and Gulf Coast, among others. And change the patterns that allowed what happened in the past that was harmful to happen. Do you think that's possible? I mean, I think collective resistance is possible, and we see it, you know, we see it in the fight for racial justice. We see it in fights for women's rights. We see it in any small way that somebody is, like, working towards a more just world, I have to believe in collective resistance, see it in the climate movement, you know, whether it can win, you know, that's what I don't know. Right. I guess that was my question. Yeah. Look into the crystal ball. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I wish I I wish I could tell you, you know, but I, I think maybe my attitude has shifted a little bit in that, like, what if the point isn't winning, but like, creating spaces of like meaning and beauty, wherever we can. And maybe that is a win itself. You know, maybe we don't Maybe none of us are going to save the whole world, but like if we can do some good or um, push back in our small way, create communities that like are are upholding some kind of justice and goodness and meaning. That's beautiful, too. You know, we just have one life to live. So like, let's let's live it up. Yeah, that's that's lovely. That's beautiful. 
I didn't know we were going to get so deep. Um, <laughs> Me neither. I, I didn't remember this. <laughs> so this is an interesting... I didn't know about um, Oak Ridge. Uh, so this is kind of new to me. It's, you know, I love it when somebody focuses in on a part of history that we know about, but we don't know about that exact piece of it. So does this community still exist? It does. Yeah. Um, it's not in its heyday anymore. It's a lot smaller than it was during the height of the Cold War. But it's still Y-12, the weapons plant where my grandfather worked is still an operating nuclear weapons plant. They still have what is probably, it's still classified, right? The single largest stockpile of enriched uranium in the world. They still make a crucial component for hydrogen bombs. And they one of the nuclear weapons laboratories that was called X-10 and is now called Oak Ridge National Laboratory actually does a lot of really important like medical research and environmental research. So they've moved in a different direction. They're no longer a weapons laboratory. So it's a complicated, it's a really complicated place with a really complicated history. And I want to add something else about what you said. You know, this is a, this is an aspect of this history that a lot of people don't know about, right? Most people know, I think if they know about the Manhattan Project, they might know about Los Alamos, which is where kind of the scientific luminaries. We have like Oppenheimer and Fermi and, you know, a bunch of other like big names are working there to create the, to build the atomic bomb. And, um, you know, that's in, in New Mexico, desert, secret desert town outside of Albuquerque. So that's a famous place. Oak Ridge was more of an industrial operation. It was more of the people living in Oak Ridge didn't know what they were doing. And so this circles back to my my interest in like living a good life, but it's like most of us are not the scientific luminaries. Most of us are not, you know, deciding we're going to drop these bombs, we're going to make these bombs. Most of us maybe don't even like know exactly like what we're doing or what we're involved in. But I was interested in that aspect of like, what about the ordinary people? What effect does it have on them to work on something like this? You know, what about the the janitors who are sweeping up. What about the people like my grandfather who know a little bit, but not all that much? So the the story of like the, the everyday. And what's interesting too is like the vast majority of, I, I'm not remembering the numbers off the top of my head. They're in the book somewhere, but there were way more workers at Oak Ridge than there were at Los Alamos. And the, it, way more of the project's budget went towards this industrial operation to enrich uranium then went towards the more famous parts of the project. And yet we don't know as much about it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Those are the kind of histories I try to highlight on my show. They're hidden. I just talked to somebody about a woman named Anna Rosenberg, who I had never heard of before. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book called The Confidant, and she was really involved in a lot of important decisions that were made during the Roosevelt era. She was the confidant. People could trust her to keep their secrets. And mm. it's a it's a hidden history. And it's like, this is, I love when historians dig into these pieces, like what you're doing. And how did it affect? I mean, because that's what it comes back to. Most of us are just the common person. Right. But my, so my next question is, where do we see this history in pop culture? And I'm just going to interject my own thing in here because I just saw this uh, series with Harry Styles. Okay. And 
I cannot think of the name of it, but it's about it's it's about this community that reminds me of Oak Ridge, like what you're talking about. It's like a secret community, and I mean, there's a bigger story and a bigger picture, but it feels like this. Mm. And I was just trying to give me a second. I'm gonna figure out what it's called. I'm curious. I don't actually know yeah. this, and I, now I want to watch it. This it seems like this perfect ideal community. The wife is waiting at the door with the cocktail when the husband gets home. Don't worry, darling. It's called Don't Worry, Darling. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I've heard of it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. A 1950s housewife living with her husband in a utopian experimental community begins to worry that his glamorous company could be hiding disturbing secrets. Anyway, okay, that's my jam. (laughs) Disturbing secrets. (laughs) Right. So it's uh, that that is definitely a pop culture thing that seems to be semi related to this. But can you think of other um, where do we see this in pop culture? Yeah. Well, so I. I guess the first thing I'd say is there, I think there's been a a shift in that, you know, during the Cold War and, you know, 1950s, 60s, you have a lot of pop culture atomic bomb stuff, you know, in a kind of like jovial way, you know, you have songs and you have in Las Vegas where, you know, outside the Nevada test site, you have atomic tourism, people coming to like watch, they would go to atomic bomb themed like cocktail parties on rooftop hotels in Vegas and like watch the test blast from there. They had Miss Atomic Bomb beauty pageants where people would dress up as mushroom clouds. Stuff that feels really cringy now, right? From our perspective, um, this kind of glorification of this violence. And so I don't see that much of that now with the exception of there's a flavor of it in places like Oak Ridge, you know, that still base their history on a pride in this work. And um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, So there is a kind of lightness sometimes that still surprises me. Because even even whatever you think of, I don't think the bombing on Hiroshima was a good thing. But however you come down on like that decision in the messiness of a very brutal war, it's not something to be taken lightly, I don't think. It was horrible, no matter how you cut it. So that said, now the most direct pop cultural link I can think of is Manhattan was a TV show about Los Alamos and that came out five years ago. I could be wrong about that. It was fun to watch because, you know, it was just dramatization of this history that I'd been really immersed in. And some of the details that I loved were just like seeing really nerdy details, right? Like I've done a lot of archival research. So seeing the actual like folders, period folders where they're like, and the memos, you know, the typescript that they used. And I was like, oh, wow, look, it's real people using those things, you know, that I have touched in the archives. Yeah, so that was that was really fun. And that show, I think, was thinking about some of the questions that I'm thinking, uh, that I was thinking about, you know, around, like, what is it? What's the human toll on the people who are doing this work? What kind of moral dilemmas do people have? Okay, another example, this may not quite be pop culture, but it is current and maybe a little plug for my own work. But I was in 2020, presented a BBC podcast on the... I saw that. Yeah, it was really, it was a really cool opportunity on Leo Szilard, who was a um, Hungarian Jewish scientist who was involved in the Manhattan Project too. And he's a really interesting character because he's, you know, arguably it's 
right, complicated, no one person is responsible for the atomic bomb. One of his scientific discoveries sort of directly led to people realizing that it was actually possible to build this instead of theoretically possible. And he kind of pushed for it initially because he, you know, there was the fear of what if the Nazis are able to make this? And so we need one first. And he, you know, he's the person who got Einstein to write the letter to Roosevelt that ultimately led to the Manhattan Project being started. And then later on, for a variety of reasons, like, thought that it shouldn't be used. You know, Germany, it's clear that Germany is going to be defeated before the bomb is even ready to be used. It's clear that they don't have a bomb. And he doesn't think it's right to use it on the Japanese um, who don't, you know, who don't have a bomb and advocates for it to be tested on an uninhabited island first so that people can see what it will cause and kind of threaten. So he's a really, you know, really complicated, interesting figure. So I think there is still current, like, interest in this history. And that was one example of that. There's still a lot to uncover, too. Mm. Yeah. I think. Yeah, totally. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to share? Mm. I always ask this question in interviews, too. It's a good one. <laughs> um, I've, I've so enjoyed this conversation. It went places I didn't completely expect. Oh, good. What one thing would you want my audience to know and or remember about this history? Mm. Maybe it's what we talked about earlier that like this is a history that involves many, many ordinary people at many levels of power and not having power and and that it you know, I guess another uh, maybe an argument in the book that that we haven't really covered is or only obliquely is that being involved in something like this not only, you know, beats to violence, say, against the people who um, are bombed or the people who are exposed to fallout from nuclear tests, you know, the external victims or the people who are exposed to environmental contaminants in the site, but it actually, like, hurts the people who are working on it, too, you know? Um, like, a lot of workers have, you know, gotten sick from their work and exposure to chemicals and radiation and... Um, and that's not even to contend with how does it deaden us emotionally to accept violence on this scale? Like what happens to us when we, what happens when we normalize something like nuclear weapons, you know, something like saying that that's, it's acceptable to possess and potentially use weapons that are capable of violence on such a cruel and massive scale that devaluing of human life, I think is is bad for everyone and keeps us from being fully like human and alive. Mm -hmm. And I think for, that's true of many histories. You know, I think of many harmful histories, racism like is bad for white people too, <laughs> which is not to say that white people are victims of it, but that we should give it up not for others, not just for others, but for ourselves. Yeah. Where can we find you? So I am, I have a website. It's my name.com, emilystrasser.com. And I'm on Twitter. I'm not super active on Twitter. And who knows what's happening with Twitter these days. Um, 
Oh, right. Right? It, Creepy. Yeah, right. I don't know how much longer. By the time you air this, will it Will it still be going? Am I going to still be on Twitter? I don't know. Yeah, so that's the question every day, right? Yeah. I'm not currently on Instagram. I may get back on soon and in the run-up to the book. But I, my website is the best place. I'll, you know, I'll keep links up to date about what I'm up to. And when does, what, uh, the name of the book, what's the name of the book again? Half-Life of a Secret. And then the subtitle is Reckoning with a Hidden History. And it comes out April 4th. So it comes out in April. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure when this episode's going to come out. It'll be before April probably. Is that okay? Okay. Yeah, that's great. I mean, um, would love for people to pre-order if they're interested. Pre-orders really help, um, help writers, you know, help presses like anticipate how many books to print it's a really great way to support writers so you can pre-order it through the university press of kentucky and you should be able to order it from any bookshop or anywhere that sells books there was one thing that i wanted to say that you reminded me of or made me think about and i so i sell vintage clothing and fashion and that type of thing i'm really into that and i never thought about the word atomic as it correlates mm. to a time it's weird i'm like embarrassed to say that but you know reading about your book and reading about you it's like i realized that connection and it now it's completely changed the way i feel about that word and how it's related to the atomic bomb i'm really glad yeah i'm really glad you brought that up because actually that does relate to your question about pop culture too that it is embedded into our language in ways that we don't think about that much radioactive too you know it's kind of like you know there's songs about being radioactive and um i think people know that that's dangerous but it's sort of it's in a lighthearted way now of course atomic isn't only a bomb it also you know the atomic level of you know atoms are are the thing that that make up our whole world, but certainly one of the ways that that word came, I think, into the common lingo is through the atomic bomb. So it definitely has that yeah. association. Well, and I think that what it is related to with regard to style and fashion, design, it's connected to the mm. other, yeah, the atomic bomb and atomic mm. energy. Oh, okay. Maybe I don't know a lot about this particular. I'd love to hear more about the particular context of how it's related to fashion. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's kind of like deco, atomic, you know. Oh, so it's like the, the era, like related yeah, to era. like a, a nostalgia for the atomic right. era. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's so. Yeah. Right. Mid century modern right. atomic. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, yeah, we have a nostalgia for a lot of things that are... That we don't think about, yeah. This right. definitely made me think about that anyways. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I wasn't so happy with the way I answered your first question, but maybe that's just how it is, so... I'm always amazed at how historians think about that question so literally. Mm. And it's really just kind of like a segue into whatever your, your project is right now. Yeah. But. So what's what's interesting about that question... And I've been thinking about it is I'm someone I'm not interested in war. I'm not really interested in weapons. I don't like war movies, you know, so for me to write a book that's about World War Two, it's about the Cold War, that's about nuclear weapons is kind of a big surprise to me as any as much as anyone else, you know, I'm interested in 
women's history. I'm interested in stories of resistance. I'm interested in um, European medieval history, all kinds of different histories that are not this one. And so, and yet I became obsessed, right? And so I guess for me, the way in was very personal and we'll get more into this, but it, it was a family history and it was, it really came about with me trying to understand something about where my family comes from, how we got to be the way we are, what is the ground that I stand on, you know? And so, and as a writer and a researcher, I really come from a creative nonfiction background, which like intimately ties often the personal with the researched and use the personal as a lens through which to explore a larger context. And so for me, this was driven from this personal angle and I can get interested in almost anything, you know, give me any topic. And if I do enough research, I'm going to find a way to be interested in it. Mm-hmm. So that's a way to not answer the favorite history, but. Well, I know. So like one of my idols is Terry Gross, Fresh Air. Oh yeah. She's amazing. I yeah. adore her. I always think what would Terry Gross do in this situation? When yeah. You can learn a lot from that. <laughs> But I remember that she interviewed a guy who wrote a book about banana blights. Like, okay. talk about boring on the surface. It was one of the best interviews I've ever listened to. I don't know. It was the passion of which the person approached the subject matter and the passion, the, you know, intrigue that Terry Gross had. I think you can make. You know, if you look beneath the surface enough, you'll find a reason to be interested. I love that answer. I, yeah. I mean, for me, it's like so much about how things are interrelated. And sometimes I have trouble focusing because you pick up one tiny thing and it's connected to everything else. And that's just how my brain works. Right. You know, yeah. I literally have this essay I want to write about dust. You know, how boring can you think about dust? But it's like, it's about housekeeping. It's about like the cells in our bodies that decay. It's about the satisfaction of cleaning. It's about like women's work. It's, you know, I think I have all these ideas about how an essay about dust could be interesting in these thoughts about dust. So I don't know. It's like, sometimes those are the most fun kind of things to write or read are things that seem so mundane, you know, and, and you can take the leap to, to see how they connect to big questions. Fascinating. See, I don't think about those things unless somebody thinks about them for me. And then Mm. like what you do, like you wrote this book about this, I wouldn't have thought of it in that way. But when it's presented to me in a certain light, then I can think about it in that way. I'm not as creative, (laughs) imaginative, maybe, I don't know, or I don't think in that way. Well, you're creative in a lot of ways. I mean, this is asking these questions, having these conversations is hugely creative. You have to yeah. that you're right. Thank yeah. you. I'm going to say thank you to that. It's okay. true. Well, uh, Emily, I really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you so much for showing up on Sunday. Oh, thank you Morning. for working me in on, on a weekend. It was I know my schedule oh, yeah, is challenging. No, works. Yeah, mine is kind of too lately. So but I'm glad we got to do this. There you have it, fellow armchair historians. Be sure to check out our episode notes to find out more about pre-ordering the book, about Emily, and about the history that we talked about today. Thanks for joining us. Have a great week.